My name is Crystal Bowie. I am an Emmy-nominated TV news reporter. I've reported in over five different news stations around the country. I feel really passionately that as an Asian-American woman, as a Vietnamese woman, that we get more Asian-Americans and Asians on TV so that growing up, kids can see someone that looks like them. So part of my goal to be a TV news reporter, even though I could have been a journalist writing for, say, a newspaper, was that I wanted children to be able to see something different in hopes that they were inspired and they could see them represented and think, hey, if she can do that, I can do that too. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you. And what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Yeah, that's a difficult question because when I grew up, I felt really ashamed of it. I was tired of being an outsider. I was tired of being different, tired of having different lunches even. And so all I wanted to do was fit in. It took when I moved to Hawaii, living in a very dominant Asian culture for me to say, wow, there are people who really respect this, embrace this, are interested in learning about my culture, interested in eating Vietnamese food, that I started getting more comfortable and feeling proud of it and feeling like I brought a perspective that perhaps a white person couldn't into a newsroom. And so I found myself to be more valuable in that way. And it took some time. And now I feel really proud of the perspective that it can bring. We're going to get into Minnesota in a little bit, but do you know who Lena Wynn is? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a few very um, prominent Asian news reporters, and I know some of us are in the same groups, but I don't know her personally. Lena's uh, also, she grew up in Minnesota. And then there's Betty Nguyen, Betty Nguyen um, yes. out of CNN. I think she was the original uh, Vietnamese um, right after, I don't know, for most of us, Connie Chung. Um, yep. But talk about stereotypical, right? I mean, it's like, there's so much. We'll unpack that later um, with some of the questions. But um just like your mom, my mom had always pushed me into becoming a, a journalist, uh, like on air. And, you know, I always thought that was almost an impossible thing for a man, uh, Asian man to get into, you know. But how did this manifest in your life? How did you uh, get the support of your mom and, and, and how did you find your way into it? Yeah, I think my mom always liked the idea that she could see me on TV almost like she would know no matter where I was in the country, exactly what I was doing that day, exactly what I was wearing, what I was talking about. And I think in a way it made her proud to be able to show her friends, like even though she didn't have the education that I did, look at my daughter. She can talk about these complicated subjects. She can be in a very white dominated industry and hold her own. So I think in a way that was like my mom's dream, right? Coming over from Vietnam and being able to see that her daughter could have a different occupation than her and could succeed in an industry that doesn't really accept Asian women. Yeah. Where do you think she got that from? I think just the way a lot of people who are immigrants just feel like perhaps that's the success, right? If I wasn't a doctor or a lawyer, a news reporter seemed pretty cool to her too. Um, and just being able to show my progress to her, I think as she watched my career grow was something that made her proud because she felt like she contributed to encouraging me to do better in school, encouraging me to write, reading all of the writing that I did, even if she didn't understand all of it. I think she saw herself as someone who was a really important part in my success. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in California, Northern Bay Area in Santa Rosa. Oh, got it. And then so um, what did you start out in life dreaming to become? So at first I wanted to be a senator and I think I didn't really know what that meant, but that was another career that my mom was like, oh, it'd be so great if my daughter brought in votes, represented the Asian community, could be a senator, a politician. Um, and then I think later my dad just was someone who watched the news all the time. Um, he is an engineer. He went to Ohio State, loved studying history, always had the news on. 
And when I was little, I thought it was so boring. Like I just didn't want to watch it, but because he always had it on, mm. I think when I saw Connie Chung and looked at her, I was like, oh, that would be interesting if I was like that. But I think as a young girl, because I didn't see many Asians and Asian Americans on TV, to me, I didn't see it as possible. Um, and so I think it took me some time to even realize like, wow, this was something that I've dreamt about for so long, mm. but you don't think about it day to day. You're just doing your job. Why do you think there's so little Asian American journalists in front of the camera or writing articles or any type of that sort of representation? Yeah, I talk about this in my book a lot. Um, and I think it's a big problem. I think a lot of it has to do with stereotypes. So people think as an Asian woman, perhaps I'm quieter. I'm not ready to be on TV. I'm not willing to be assertive to go after the big stories that are like crimes, chasing down investigations. And so a lot of it is just stereotypical, but if we keep buying into those stereotypes, we won't change people's minds. So I think a part of me even wanting to be an investigative reporter is I knew there were so many white men who were seen as like, oh, they will go after the tough questions. They'll get the answers for the viewers. And I could show that, you know what, I can do it too. And I didn't have to live up to these stereotypes. But I think because of that, a lot of people were uncomfortable with me, including some of my bosses. Now, when you talk about these hardships of when you go out in the field and you're trying to get questions and you're running into real life Americans that are conditioned for hundreds of years through generations of what we call racism and it doesn't show up necessarily that clearly but there's can you talk about what kind of sort of ways that it does show up absolutely so people are sometimes still surprised by how good my english is which I'm like, I was born in Los Angeles. I majored in English. I wanna be like, I probably know better grammar than the average person as someone who studied this in college, but they would still talk to me like that. And a part of my theory on why racism exists is because of lack of exposure. So when you go to a place like Minnesota, I saw so many people who didn't have passports. And I understand saying that sounds like it comes from very privileged space, However, at the same time, I think if you prioritized even being exposed to people, you know, going to Puerto Rico, which isn't that expensive, trying different foods, then you don't treat other people like they're the other, you know, and I think a lot of times I was treated like someone different because they had simply maybe not seen someone like me in person. So they automatically assumed I would be everything that was not like them. I would have different values than them. I would have worse values than them. And so they treated me a certain way because they were just not familiar with it. Over time, were you able to overcome their way of thinking about you? Do you it think, was, you, made a, do you think you made an, uh, them adjust to sort of like a new way of looking at an Asian person? It was really hard in the beginning of my career. I didn't really have thick skin. So when someone said something to me that I felt was really offensive, I would go home and like cry. I would call my dad and he would be like, you got to stick to this, ignore those comments. But when you're so young and I was in my early 20s, when people said certain things like that to me, um, people would use the C word to describe Asians to me, even online. So derogatory terms. It was just really hard. But I think the more I was like, I'm here to stay. And whether or not you're comfortable with this, you're still going to be exposed to an Asian woman on TV doing the same investigative reporting that white men are doing. I think people slowly started adapting a little bit or they were exposed to it. So I had hopes that maybe they would change their minds in terms of how they thought oh, an Asian woman should be. But, but after a few years of sort of getting and growing thick skin do you feel like you actually made um not inroads in particular but sort of expanded the way that people maybe homicide detectives i'm just throwing this out there but people on the other end and the receiving end of the questions do you think that over the years that the that your perception 
your perception, your physical perception when you showed up, that these people were more open to giving you the information that you needed? Or do you think it just stayed the same when you left that market or any of these markets? I think it was whether or not you like it, here I am. And, you know, that's maybe too hard hitting of a perspective, but I think that's really how it was, was fine. You can feel that way about me, but guess what? I'm still standing here. I'm going to interview you and you're going to have to give me the sound bites. Otherwise you're not going to get that coverage on TV. And I think perhaps slowly over time, there were a couple police officers that were very uncomfortable with me. I could tell in the beginning, but I think the more I just kind of showed how hard I worked and who I really was with some of my hopefully intelligent questions, they kind of got used to it. It's that idea of be so good, they can't look away, you know, and I kind of, I think, forced people to really have to reconcile with their own beliefs um, and challenge them to see me a different way because they couldn't think otherwise at that point. You know, you have amassed so much experience and so much, you know, we'll call it thick skin now. And I know that you are um, on a different journey now. Um, and we'll get into that. But don't you think leaving right now, and this is not just going for you. I, I know I've interviewed several journalists that have left the business. Don't you think that staying on board for another decade could help race relations or sort of the perception of because you've made it so far and there's only a handful of people like you why not stay back and fight the good fight yeah that's a tough question because i had to think about it through a lot of different lenses um and it was hard for me because i did feel that guilt when i was leaving to work on this book when i was leaving to work on consulting but the way i think about it is as much as I want to fight the good fight, there are other ways to still do that. That doesn't include staying in an abusive and sexist industry. And there were other ways that I could bring a voice out there to bring representation. That doesn't mean I have to deal with some of these corporate bosses who wouldn't stop in terms of trying to keep me down. Um, so I think while I understand everything you're saying, it's different from the inside where you're like, is this worth it to continue to deal with racism and sexism every single day? I don't want to play the hero here. I think I can still be a role model in different ways. Um, that doesn't mean me having, you know, almost like to die for the cause or something like that, to sacrifice myself to make this point. Now, that means that you've made a conscious decision, which I applaud, you're right? You're like, I'm not staying in that toxic environment. But do you think, though, that if if we can imagine a better landscape in that sort of line of work, how would it grow from where it's at right now if there are not active members of that core people inside the trenches doing the work? And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that you should stay back. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if we were to reimagine sort of that structure, how is it gonna improve um, if these wonderful people like you and, and other uh, reporters are leaving because it's not the environment that they want to be in? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I think that now a lot of Asians and Asian Americans are making inroads, right? So when I saw Crazy Rich Asians, I was like, yes, almost every single actor was Asian in the movie. So I think, like I mentioned, there are different ways to do mm. this. I don't think Hollywood is a great place for Asians to be either, but it's so different than the way I grew up where I'm thinking if some people want to keep doing this, putting themselves out there, they can do this. Um, and like you said, keep fighting the good fight. I do think because of this book tour, um, I've actually been on the other side, like doing this interview with you. I still go on TV and talk about my books. So it's just been a different conversation. And it's nice to still be on TV, but not be subject to some of that racism and sexism because I can just come on, be a guest, talk about my childhood, my book. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, great. Thanks for the interview. I'm done. You know, so I think that representation is still out there. I'm just not there in the same capacity that I was. This work has made me think about how insular having these um, ancillary, you know, like podcasts, you know, we're, we're insular and we are in the world of our own and becoming more niche uh, with the content that we are talking about and creating. And 
I wonder how we will get into the change of mainstream. I mean, here's the question. Are we, are we, in, are we validating just our insular bubble or do you think that this spills out eventually to just wider markets and wider mainstream coverage? You know, the work that we do sort of like in, in our own comfort lane, right? It's like, is this going, it, it makes an impact within our community and it, get, it gets stronger and it gets wider. But also at the same time, I wonder how you think that keeping it sort of insular is, because um, this is just a question I have for my, my own sanity, right? Is the work that we do within our own niche, um, how do we get it beyond and into the mainstream uh, world? I think one of the ways to do it is to be allies with people who are in positions of power or understand what you're going through. So in an ideal world, I think there could be collaboration between the Stop AAPI Hate Movement and even Me Too and Black Lives Matter because they're marginalized groups, right? And I think one of the ways that you keep minorities down is when you make them feel like they're alone, like Asians are alone and black people are alone and we all have different experiences. But if you're all experiencing some sort of discrimination, you can't let someone you know, divide and conquer. If we all came together and really spoke out about this and didn't keep ourselves so separated, I think there could be a change. So for example, one of the newscasts I came on to talk about my book, both the anchors were black. And I think they really understood what I was saying, even though they're not Asian, but it was still a shared experience when I talked about the racism, the lack of Asian people on TV. I even had a black woman tell me, you know, during some of the Black Lives Matter movement, there was only one other black person in the newsroom. And she talked to me about how alone she felt mm. and she could relate to my same feeling. So I think the only way that we can really get out there is if we make these collaborations, these alliances so that we can work together to really fight some of the discrimination. That's a great answer. You know, I uh, saw this clip, this compilation clip, um, many years ago, it's after a major, some major catastrophe, some major event. And it was like all of these, uh, it was like a collage, a video collage of like all these news reporter. And it was a playback of the first 15 seconds, 20 seconds of their intro to whatever that event was. And it was all scripted the same. And it, it was like watching something out of the Truman Show, like the movie that was so uh, eerie, knowing that uh, there's one probably power behind the push of the message that was being showed in the compilation clip. Do you have any experience with that sort of um, push, dogmatic or agenda push of the news station? What's your take on that? Absolutely. I think some of it comes into play, right? Because people don't talk about this enough. TV is still a business. We still sell commercials. We need advertisers to still be happy with us because if they weren't, they can't hire news reporters, right? And in the same way, a lot of newsrooms and media companies are publicly owned. That also influences, right? Because you can trade stocks and literally own media companies. So I did experience some of that. I believe the company you're talking about is Sinclair. I did work for them and I was there when the anchors were handed a script that they needed to read. Um, and some of the issues with that is they knew they were obligated to read it. They didn't have any other choice. Everyone's trying to make sure that you still have a career. Um, and the reason that is, is because it depends on the ownership, right? So if you're owned by a CEO that's very conservative, it's hard, I think, for some of the owners to remove themselves. And in Minneapolis, I talked about this in the book, we were owned by a billionaire family, multi-billionaire family. And we had found out through a newspaper article done about our owners that they had actually contributed to Republican campaigns. And so they said in the newspaper article, you know, that's never influenced our coverage, but how could it not? If you're putting money into a certain cause, I think you want to make sure that money 
is spent and doesn't go to waste, right? So even if that they didn't tell me exactly what I needed to say on air, I think the way you can do it is managers have to approve what stories are done for the day and they approve what story goes first at 6 p.m. So you don't have to come out right and have an agenda per se, but you can still influence who sees what. And maybe there are certain stories potentially that they were like, oh, you know, this doesn't really fit with what we donated to. Let's play it at 4.30 a.m., right? There's still ways to do it. Um, And I think that's the problem, right, is that it's a double-edged sword. Some of these companies can't survive if it's not a business. But at the same time, I think that that does influence coverage, whether obvious or in subtle ways in terms of what stories get the most airtime. That's a paradox that the news business is not going to be able to get out of anytime soon. I mean, and that's everywhere. That's not just the United States. It's all over Europe, Vietnam. I mean, everywhere, something's controlling what we consume. Yeah, and money talks, right? So if advertisers are paying for your salary, that's how it's going to work. I mean, I've worked at different news stations where you see on TV a lot of commercials are car companies, right? Car dealerships. They buy a lot of the ads. And there were times where I remember some of our managers had to think twice about whether or not we wanted to run a story, perhaps about a recall or, you know, maybe we run the story, but it's only 30 seconds. So there's still all of these business decisions that come into play. And I'm not saying I know all of it, right, because I'm not in these behind the door conversations, Um, but I saw it a little bit. And I think what's scary about some of it is if I got a little taste of it, Um, I don't know what else was said. I don't know how much else is going on, but that was just from my perspective, from my experience of what I saw. Can you tell me a little bit about the, your professional sort of milestones that led you, um, to Minnesota and really covering the George Floyd case? Yeah, I was a really aggressive reporter when I was young. Um, so my first market was actually, Uh, small town. Most reporters have to start in a very small town in case you mess up on TV. You don't have that many people seeing it. You might have like several thousand. Um, So it was like middle of nowhere, Washington state. There were only two restaurants. I kid you not on my birthday. One of them was closed and I was so upset because I knew what restaurant I wanted to go to, but I just hustled, you know? And I remember one morning I was listening to the police scanners because that was kind of how I figured out some of my stories. And I heard this call where police were like, hey, we need some firefighters stationed outside this location. And I was like, "That there's no reason that a bunch of firefighters would just be waiting around this building, right? So I called my boss, it was really early. And I said, hey, can I clock in? I wanna go to this location, something doesn't feel right it's fine. I just want to check it out. And he said, okay. So I show up and it's a SWAT standoff, like nothing I'd ever seen before in a town this small. And so we learned at some point that the suspect inside during the standoff actually had guns. So they're yelling at him on the megaphone, you know, come out, come out, come out. And at this point I was filming my stories by myself. So I had my camera set up behind a police car. Like I was ready to go. Wait a minute. You You had your own camera? You set yes, the camera up? Yes, because when you're in a small market, they don't have a budget for you to have like a camera guy or, or, you know, camera woman. So you're doing it by yourself. So I was like carrying this tripod. I'm like running around. I mean, I'm telling you, I like hustled my career. And so, you know, they're yelling, come out, come out with your hands up. And suddenly, and I'm luckily I was hitting record. Like I just had a bad feeling about this. The suspect comes rushing out at police. And generally when that happens, like they have the right to, fire and shoot the suspect right they already knew the suspect had guns but they didn't and they tackled the guy instead and it was incredible because my footage caught it all and i was the only reporter at the scene because i heard this weird call on the police scanner um and i actually won awards for that uh shot because no one else had it i actually convinced i think it was a couple of swat team guys um i said they were like we really want your footage and i said okay i'll make a deal with you which my boss approved so this wasn't like illicit i said you give me an interview and we'll share the footage of it just for training purposes and they said all right so i also had this exclusive interview with 
you know, SWAT team agents. And I think that was a part of it was I hustled so hard in my career, you know, as a news reporter, when you're watching it at growing up, I didn't think I would ever have to like pick up a camera, a heavy tripod, you know, 30 pounds, like I'm skinny, you know, so that's, that was hard to do. Um, but I think that's when I realized that the industry is competitive and for you to get a leg up, that's what you needed to do. So that award helped me land a position in Providence, Rhode Island. That was one of the craziest markets I've ever worked in, like very competitive market. We had the Aaron Hernandez double trial case that Mm. they assigned to me. So all of a sudden I was getting these really big stories, right? We also had the Michelle Carter case. And you might remember, she was the one that encouraged her boyfriend to commit suicide. So I was like sitting in the, you know, back row watching her. Someone else was filming it at this point point, which is good. Um, so then I just started collecting like all of these really big stories. And the more I proved myself that I could keep up with, you know, some of the white men in the newsroom, the more I started getting these stories. Um, so then I went to New York city as a freelance reporter. That was a really big market, but started experiencing some racism and sexism there, which you experience the higher you climb. Um, and once it was apparent that it wasn't where I wanted to be, I actually signed with a TV news agent And he got me to Minneapolis. And I thought at that point, okay, New York City was crazy. There were so many crime stories. This is great. I'm going to have a quiet life in Minnesota. It's going to be a little cold. And then suddenly the pandemic hits, right? And I'm like the forefront reporter. And then three months into the pandemic, we have George Floyd being murdered. And so suddenly I was like, this was not what I pictured. But there I was again, having to step up to the plate. Um, so yeah, long story short, it was incredible how just one thing led to another. So, so you were there for three months and that George Floyd situation broke out. So I had been there, I believe it was for actually nine months. So I was there June of 2019. And then of course the pandemic happened March of 2020. And then George Floyd was murdered end of May, 2020. So it happened really quickly during the pandemic. People forget that the pandemic had just began the shutdowns when he was killed. And, and was that like a major news station that you were at? Nope. This was a small family owned uh, billionaire company. Um, and, but I thought we were competitive. And, and were there any other news stations sort of like doing um, a lot of the heavy lifting of the George Floyd story at the time? So we had like four local stations there. So obviously the local stations like CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, and we're all very competitive against each other. So it was like, who could get George Floyd's family? Who could get, you know, Derek Chauvin's family? Like it was extremely competitive. And then once that story got bigger and bigger, I started seeing network reporters come down, you know, with a whole camera crew. Like that was not what I had. Um, So that was crazy because I felt like I learned so much, you know, if a news station, if another reporter, uh, you know, this scoops you, so they get a better story than you, you learn really quickly how not to let someone scoop you again. Um, so I thought in a way it was like great training before I landed a job in Atlanta, but it's just really difficult training though. Okay. Can you walk me through this Minnesota sort of time in George Floyd? Like, this happens in the news or this happens and you find out about it what happens for you to kind of cover it like what behind the scenes mechanically happens when you go into kind of like overdrive it was a big story what happens at that point yeah that's a good question because a lot of viewers don't know what happens behind the scenes right so this was right after memorial day weekend and it was midnight going into i believe it would have been tuesday midnight Um, we started getting these news tips, like viewers will email the station with like, oh, you guys need to cover this story, this story. And so the news tips started saying stuff like, why are you guys covering up for this white officer who killed a black man? And we had no idea what they were talking about. We were like, what are we covering up? There's, there's nothing to cover up, you know, but then we noticed there were more and more tips. So it was, why aren't you guys covering this and this and this? Why haven't you guys aired this? And then we were like, okay, so something's wrong. So it's an all hands on deck situation. Everyone is making calls. Like, do we have sources inside Minneapolis Police Department who might know, who might be able to tell us off the record? 
we started uh, calling the Minneapolis police department themselves and kind of like putting pressure on them. Did this happen? Are you guys lying about this? Why haven't you guys told news stations about this? Right. So eventually they send out a press release describing the situation. And as we learned months later, that press release was a lie. The way they described it initially was wrong. And we only learned it was wrong once that video was leaked, right? The video scene around the world. Um, so I remember I was sitting at my desk when the video was leaked. Um, it was leaked a few hours ago, but I hadn't watched it yet because I was working the night shift. So one of the reporters came over to my desk and she was like, have you seen the video yet? Like, it's really bad, it's really scary. And in my mind, I had never seen anything like that before, right? Most of my career was say like officer involved shootings where the officer perhaps shoots a suspect and it happens really quick and it's over. I did not realize how brutal it would be to watch that uncomfortable nine minutes and 29 seconds. Um, and then once the video was leaked, I suddenly realized it was an Asian officer that was also at the scene. And I think I like slammed my hand into my desk and I was like, come on, you know, because there was enough hate crimes against Asians during the pandemic. So almost three months in now, there is, you know, bad optics, not like this man should have represented all Asian Americans, right? But certainly when people watch that footage, a lot of people almost like blamed him and the Asian community for like supporting the white man and supporting, you know, the abuse. But then as we learned, obviously there was also a biracial half black officer at the scene too. So it was just really bizarre footage to watch because I was like, here's an Asian man, here's a half black cop. And you would think because of the discrimination they both likely experienced that they would have stopped something like this, right? But it was disturbing watching the footage and realizing that maybe had the minority men banded together, George Floyd would still be alive if they stood up for something. You know, one thing that divides our community, the Vietnamese community, is the way young people and the way old, older people in our Vietnamese community see black people and the way mm -hmm. they see news coverage with BLM, George Floyd, people in my family are very limited with the vocabulary of black history. And that's something that is not dissected enough. Like the history of blacks in America is not understood very well with the Vietnamese community. And I'm not afraid to say this, the black on Asian violence that we, we, we see is something that makes the Vietnamese community very upset and very angry that news or politicians or it, it, it doesn't address. But thing, the one thing I feel like we don't talk enough about is the way the black community has arrived at these persecuted moments. There's, a, there, there's 400 years of, I mean, there's like memoirs, right, that you can read, like uh, Richard Wright's Black Boy. I'm, I'm working on that right now. And it talks about, you know, a young boy in the 1920s growing up in the, in the South, in Jackson, Mississippi. And it talks about really how his whole life, as it, up until 20 years old, he moves up to the North and to Chicago. He is treated like an animal. And this is not just one Black boy. This is an entire group of people 100 years ago being treated a certain way. Now, it, and, and this is where it gets so so difficult to kind of process it all. It's like, and that and that's how we're going to talk about the memoir. It's it's like all of these things that happen that we don't get to air out, especially in the Vietnamese community. And you know, with your with your memoir, you know, I want to ask you some questions about, um, you know, covering that. You know, does your book talk about mostly your experience with the coverage and the politics behind that coverage? Or do you do you get into a, a little bit of that neighborhood of um, black history and 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 why we in America are where we are today um, because of black history? So let me backtrack real quick, if that's okay, because you brought up some really good points at the beginning of that. Um, I do know from watching a lot of the footage, especially during the Stop AAPI hate movement, a lot of it was black people um, hurting Asians, right? 
But what we're forgetting is during the Atlanta spa shootings, it was a white man that killed six Asian women. So I think maybe in a way that coverage is a little bit skewed, right? Yeah. I would challenge that because maybe the image that people remember is a black man, but I would say maybe we need to look at the numbers a little bit more closely. I don't know the numbers myself, um, but like I'm saying, it wasn't a black man that went on a rampage and killed six Asian women uh, in Atlanta. Um, another point I would make is the same thing as I said before. I think a lot of it is segregation, right? So if my parents are uncomfortable around black people because that's how they were raised or that's just how they feel, they're less likely to want to talk to a black person, to want to be around a black person. And it's different for the younger generation, right? Where I went to college, there were a lot of black people. So I didn't really grow up being scared of a black person potentially. Um, so that's where I think it's important in the same way that I think if white people were around more Asian people, I think if Asian people, well, and white people were around more black people, perhaps that fear uh, would go away. Um, also the coverage too. I mean, I'm sure that there's black on white and there's black on Mexican all the time, but then like the outlets that we are consuming perhaps on Instagram is showcasing a lot of black on Asian. And so it's really like a focused uh, niche where, you know, we're only seeing a slice of the, the violence that's happening, but there's, I'm sure a lot of Mexicans on Asians, Latinos or whites on Asians that we just don't see the coverage because of the select niche that we're consuming. Yeah, I don't know if I have a good answer to that, because obviously this comes from the owners, right, who are maybe deciding how much airtime the story gets. And I know I've listened to uh, a radio piece before, I think it was on NPR, where they said Facebook has an algorithm. And so in the same manner, because they own Instagram, Instagram does too, where when you react with that angry face, yeah. you know, how you can click on different emotions, those stories actually trend more. Because that's what they want. The stories that make people angry are more widely shared. So I don't know if maybe for some reason when one person starts seeing a black person committing a crime, they start hitting that button, perhaps more than if they saw a white person. And then it's almost like the chicken or the egg, yeah. right? So why does it start trending? Maybe because a few people start clicking on it more and then suddenly that's what you're more likely to see. Um but I think you're right. Like we don't show everyone every crime or maybe people don't remember it. Right. Because maybe if I had asked someone, who do you think shot up six Asian women? Maybe they would assume it was a black person. Right. I'm not really sure, but I would guess that people are more used to that image um, in the same way. I would actually make a point. People, when they think about news reporters, they picture like a pretty female news reporter. Right women are actually outnumbered almost three to one wow. in the news industry by men. So it really is just your brain having this perception of, oh, I think of a news reporter, she's gotta be pretty, you know, wearing a pretty dress. No, there are actually like three times more men in the newsroom. You just don't really notice it because that's not, you know, what you're picturing as the default. It's I don't so know if I answered your question, but. Well, yeah, the, well, the second part of the uh, question is uh, the memoir that you wrote. Is it more dealing with, um, do you go do you go a little further back with, with the Little Black History or are you really just talking about your experience um, in Minnesota during the George Floyd time? Um, I think it was a little bit of both. So I think in a way that people are saying George Floyd, I don't like it when some people are actually saying George Floyd deserved to die because he was on drugs, because he was resisting arrest. Um, I talk about that because I think some of that comes into the discrimination that Black people face. So I do explore some of the issues um, that the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to address um, because of some of those perceptions. But I talk about this also in the book. So during the time that George Floyd was murdered through Derek Chauvin's conviction and sentencing, my newsroom had about 35 people on air that you could see on TV. Of the 35 or so people, there was one Asian reporter, female, me, and only one Black female reporter. We had not a single Asian male reporter. And more importantly, we didn't have a single black male reporter who maybe would have understood what George Floyd was going through more. But, um, but, but let me stop you. Even if there were people 
that were white men or an Asian woman, a black woman who understood, are you at liberty to even talk about it though? About the, 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 the nuance of what was happening? Because it's scripted, you right? What you're saying is kind of scripted on air or are you at freedom to really throw some conjecture in? Um, we have to be careful, right? So what I've been proud of is I think my coverage generally covers two sides where a lot of people don't know whether or not I'm conservative or liberal, which is kind of where I'd like it to be because that yeah. means I'm using both so that they can't quite tell. Um, we're, reporters pitch their own stories and reporters write their own scripts. The scripts have to be approved and sometimes they're edited by managers. I think a part of the problem is when you have two minorities out of about 30 something reporters, you have two people that are maybe pitching the stories that would matter to the minority mm, community. Great. So as much as she and I could try to bring some of these stories up, if you're having 35 or so people, of course, the newscast is going to be dominant in terms of a different perspective, right? So I think that played a role in, in, in some in coverage. Sense. Yeah, it plays mm -hmm. a role in the coverage because it's it's like 35 jury, jury, jurors sitting on a panel kind of like, pitching their own way of looking at it. I mean, that's a bad analogy. It's it's more like there's 35 people who are throwing their kind of ideas out and then somebody on the editorial or the, the, the people who are picking the stories have to pick what is in front of them. But if there's only two minorities in front of them, right, then right. that's the only two minority story angles that they're gonna potentially right. see. And so the way I explain it, which I think you're trying to get at as well is, it's almost like if you had a room full of science majors, right? And only one history major and only one math major. And then all of a sudden a huge historical event happens and you're, everyone's sitting there like, oh no, we have a room full of science majors and we have one history major only and one math major. I mean, that's what happens with the coverage, right? People don't have the knowledge of the background or the sensitivity. And so I think it's the same way, whether or not it's a science major or dominantly white newsroom, People have these perspectives, but it's not all represented. Wow. How did you pick the theme of your memoir? Because memoirs have themes. You can cover so many different, you can go in different directions. How did you pick out and know what thematically you wanted to say? Yeah, so I think something important, which you've also talked about, is in a TV newscast, when you subtract commercials, a 30 minute newscast is actually only 23 minutes. And so because of that, most of the stories are limited to 90 seconds. So how do you really cover something that is so big, social injustice, um, even the stop AAPI hate movement, if you only have 90 seconds to say what you need to on air? So a part of me realized that I saw so much behind the scenes that never made it into the final cut. Now, of course I could include and propose what I needed to, but I had to leave stuff out, right? If the time constraint is 90 seconds. So what I realized is perhaps if viewers, and in this case, readers, got to understand the whole perspective, what they actually never saw on TV, but what I saw, because I just saw it when the cameras weren't rolling, right? then maybe there would be more of an understanding of each other. Maybe people would actually realize how much of an issue racism and sexism is, but it's subtle. Um, so I think that was the goal of the book is to look at George Floyd's murder in a more critical lens that we weren't able to present on TV. And then to talk about some of the sexism and the racism that happens in the newsroom and other, you know, as you and I mentioned, I also talked about how news is a business. So I talk about that in the book too. And so that's where the title came from, More to Tell, was I really felt like we just couldn't say enough in a 90 second story. And so I had more to tell. And this was my way of sharing it with the audience. Now you are at that point while you're writing, you're an active news reporter. Now the decision to put it in a memoir potentially could limit your employment in the future. How do you toggle sort of that decision between the polarities of like, oh, I'm going to write this book versus I want to work more? Yeah, so I think that was a part of why I felt like it was safer for me to leave the news industry. And I did talk to a mentor about that where I was like, 
I feel like when this book comes out and I'm really whistleblowing on everything that happens behind the scenes of the racism and the sexism that newsrooms perpetuate while they pretend that they're so progressive, I was like, I don't think that people will ever see me as an objective reporter again if they read the book. And I was like, I don't think I'll be able to be a news reporter. And he said, that's okay. And I never thought of it like that. He was just like, so who cares? You can do other things. You know, and he and I talked about that. He was like, here are some things, and he's black. Here are some things that you can still do to fight the injustice. It doesn't have to be through news reporting. Um, and I never thought during the time that George Floyd was murdered that I would be writing a book. I just felt really compelled to like take notes for whatever reason. So maybe I kind of knew the book was about to happen. Um, and then luckily, you know, during this age, there's so much footage of me out there. So I can remember the story because wow. I literally can go back through the archives and play the story and you know verify it. So I think that has been a great part of it too is some people might be like, oh, well, her perspective is skewed. This didn't really happen. And I could be like, play the footage. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't have to defend this because you can literally go back and watch it. But, but aren't there positions sort of like at stations like CNN and where you can give your opinion or your editorial, you know, your thoughts uh, free from sort of this bondage of covering factual news that you that they would bring you on because of your background um, in that very specific time frame. And that now that we could hear how you clearly were thinking about things that we would value you here at CNN or wherever, you know, they would take you as a commentator saying, well, this is more balanced and this is more fair. We want you at this desk so you can make commentary on the war and you can balance it out. And this is what we can use you for. Is there that potential? So, I mean, who knows where the future will lead, right? But you have people like Megan Kelly, you know, who I think she asked tough questions, but she obviously was very conservative. Um, so in a way, she was able to still be a journalist, but have aggressive opinions because yeah. that was the outlet. Um, but I do think, like I mentioned before, being on this book tour and still being interviewed by different anchors. And I've been interviewed, you know, like I said, multiple times by black anchors who understood it. I thought those outlets were great because they really encouraged me. They weren't like, oh, you should hide this. I mean, they really asked me some tough questions um, because I knew that was what their audience wanted. So I think it is, like you said, about picking the right audience. I don't think me talking about sexism and racism would work everywhere. Um, but like you said, perhaps it'll be welcome in some spaces. And what my publicist and I are looking at is potentially doing a university tour. So we've started booking that because I think college students, when they're young, should be thinking about sexism and racism. And that would be more of a receptive audience. So like I said, maybe not TV, but there's still different ways to reach people. You know, um, we're not done yet, but I'd like you to kind of remind uh, the audience or talk, tell us about the, the the title of the book. It hasn't been released yet and, and all of the logistics. And then we'll remind everybody at the end of the um, podcast. Sure. Um, so thank you for asking that. The book is called More to Tell. It's about my career as a TV news reporter and specifically as a Vietnamese first generation TV news reporter and the sexism and the racism I saw behind the scenes especially when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. So you can pre-order it right now. It's going to be an author signed copy. That's something you like. Um, it's going to come out in the spring of 2023, but you just go to more to tell book.com. And as I talk to you about this, I would like to make sure uh, if your listeners want to be able to read the book, that finances aren't a barrier. Um, so you can put in a discount code on checkout, just type in Vietnam and they'll be able to get a discount code just so I can make sure it's available to as many people. So there's a lot of people in the demographics of uh, anti-BLM. Uh, they think George Floyd deserved it. They're a little bit older than I am and they won't have it. They won't, and but they can read English and they can fully comprehend a story that is coming from the perspective of, of a reporter like you. How would you kind of coax them into saying, hey, give this a chance because, and I don't mean that, you know, on a sales driven purpose here, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm saying on a philosophical level, why should these people on the other side read it, right? Why would they read the account of 
a journalist that is giving a tell-all of, of this stuff that they don't, that they feel very uncomfortable with? Uh, I really like that question because I would ask that person, read it, and then tell me if you still have the same opinion. Mm, because I would argue the minute they read it, perhaps they'll see the situation differently. And that's the point of the book, right? If you're just going to watch this stuff on TV, read a few newspaper articles, I don't blame them. They're going to have their own perspective. But read a book that's more than 200 pages and then tell me what you think, right? I mean, I would encourage them to still look at it because I want this to be a conversation. I think that's really the only way, one of the only ways that you can address racism and sexism is if you actually talk about it. If I can actually hear your opinion about why you feel that way about George Floyd, um, maybe we can have a conversation and we'll both understand each other a little bit better. Um, one thing I did talk about in the book, which I think is really important to bring up, you know, there was this perception, and I think some of it is correct, right? There's gray areas that Black Lives Matter was like a violent protest group. Um, what I actually found through the data is there were over 90% of protests all around the country that were actually not violent. You only saw the violence on TV, right? So that's the problem. The other thing was when the riots started, a lot of people assumed that it was Black Lives Matter that started the violence. That was actually wrong. So we didn't aggressively cover it on TV. I covered it for 90 seconds. But the first person who started hitting the auto zone, so that was the first big vandalism, was actually a guy that was part of a white uh, anti-government movement. And as soon as he did that, it was like everyone snapped, but it wasn't Black Lives Matter that started that first, you know, through that first stone, so to speak. Um, it was actually someone on a totally different, you know, political belief and, you know, maybe wanting to instigate the crowd. They were obviously successful, um, but Minneapolis police came out and said that we have the footage of the first person who started the violence and this person was not with Black Lives Matter. And they, they found stuff that he had posted online to kind of prove that as well. I'm going to put my neck on the chopping block here. I remember, I think it was about George Floyd. I think that my post on Facebook, if, if you go back far enough, the night or the day that that news broke, I think I wrote something like, burn the city down. That was my, that was me having that reaction. Because I am so, for me, my brother, we grew up in black neighborhoods. We lived amongst the experience of blacks being persecuted and being treated differently and understanding how good black people are. Or good, that's such a dumb thing to say, how good people are, right? It's just yeah. how good people are. Or and, just the stereotypes weren't all true because you saw the opposite, I imagine. Yeah, and I was so enraged. I was so enraged that this happened. Um, I don't care what he did. I don't care that George Floyd was whoever he was. We just don't go about doing that and condoning that from, from the police. And the conversation of defunding the police and all of this other stuff is so complicated. It's not uh, something that um, you can take positions lightly without conversation. And I think that's the thing about today. I'm going to read the book. I'm going to take time to, to, I wish I was able to read it before, you know, we did this interview, but that's the way it goes. And I'm going to read it and I'm going to inform myself and, and arm myself with a perspective that may, uh, may be in uh, unison with how I think and feel or may not, but at least, and this is, I'm making a, an, an argument for people to pick up the, the book so they have something that they can share with their family and have dialogue about and say, well, you know, I agree with her here and I don't agree with her over here, but at least we can get one step further to understanding what makes this society uh, tick the way it, way it has. And I think the polarization is not helping. No, I absolutely agree with you. I also talked about that in the book, actually. So the issue I thought that was really hard for me in Minneapolis, so I've lived in, gosh, I don't even know, I think seven or eight states at this point. Um, it was very passive aggressive. And I've talked to other people about this. So they call it Minnesota nice. Uh, which is supposed to be the same as Southern hospitality. But yeah. now that I live in Atlanta, I'm like, there's, there's no way the same. What I found about Minnesota nice was you say something that seems nice, but you mean actually something else, 
or Minnesota nice means you don't want to talk about politics. Instead, it's better, better to talk about the weather. And so I think that's how tension mounts, right? Like totally. me, I'm dealing with racism, but technically if I said anything, I'm breaking this code of Minnesota nice. And that was culturally not appropriate. Or I imagine as a black person, they're like me getting all these passive aggressive comments about whatever. Oh, your English is so great, right? Minnesota nice. It's supposed to be seen as a compliment. That's not a compliment. That's like the perfect example. So when you're like, gosh, you know, of course people thought burn the city down. I think it was because they were holding it inside for so long that at one point they were like, enough is enough. Like I've been dealing with this enough in this state. And now I just had to sit through nine minutes and 29 seconds where any of these men could have changed their mind and didn't. I mean, I got it. I didn't think it was a great choice because a lot of the businesses burnt down were actually minority owned businesses. So I had a problem with that. Um, but I understood the anger, if that makes sense. And I talk about that in the book. It's like, you don't condone the actions of hurting other families, other minority owned businesses, small businesses in general, but you can understand the anger that comes from having to be silent for so long, right? And a part of the book is that point. I'm finally talking about some of the stuff that I've held in for so long. Um, and maybe it'll help other people who have felt angry for some time to be like, wow, she understood what I feel and she finally said it. And maybe now I can say it too. Or like you said, maybe someone reads it and thinks I don't agree with her at all. Then I'd say, great, let's talk about it. You know, cause I'm interested in why after presenting all the facts to you, perhaps you still feel differently. I'd like to know, cause then I can also strengthen my own opinion by learning about why someone disagrees so much. I applaud your courage to put pen to paper and do it and put the, the thoughts out there. Uh, I hope that the book moves the needle um, across the country, you know, so we can see things in a little bit more examined under microscope from behind the scenes. Because I think we all get this news coverage that's sort of manufactured and, you know, it's not clean, quote unquote. Now, that leads me to the next topic, which is how do we get clean unbiased news if we know that news is privatized and news is held by you know companies that have shareholders how are we getting anything neutral how are we getting walter concrete anymore mm -hmm. it's a good question because it's getting more and more difficult right i mean when we're talking about facebook posts trending because people are getting angry um it's hard to believe it and it's hard to really be able to get both perspectives uh when i deal with something like this i like to go for as neutral of sources as possible so i think npr is a good example of someone that tends to be more middle line um and then i'll sometimes even read from both fox and then also cnn because i want to see okay where do they overlap and then where am i being pushed from different sides right so i think a part of why some things feel very polar and maybe people get one-sided news is because they are attracted to that one-sided news, yeah. right? It's easier if you're liberal to read the New York Times. I get that. Um, but if you want to challenge yourself, read both sides. And then, like I said, see where it overlaps, see where it's different and, you know, see where you agree and which side you agree the most with. You, you have to do your research and that's hard because we're all so busy. Um, but I think if that's something that people want, they just have to look a little bit more. Have you been to Vietnam? I have, but I was really young. So I was about eight years old, mm. I think. Um, and I haven't had the chance to go back since then. Uh, what do you think of it? What do you think you'll see if you ever went to Vietnam? I loved it when I was young because it was so nice. I grew up in a very predominantly white community. So I was like, oh, like people understand me when I speak Vietnamese, like I get to just walk around and eat authentic, great Vietnamese food. Like it was like a playground for me, you know, being able to see all of this. And then of course my parents took me back to parts where they grew up. Um, and I thought that was very influential to me. They grew up very poor. I think like most people did during that time during the war. Um, and it made me really understand like the value of the dollar and why they were so like aggressive with me about, you know, saving money, being smart and how you spend your money. 
Um, so I think it was really eye-opening. And I hope at some point, you know, with all of this craziness, I find a way to go back because I think even as an adult now, it'll give me even more perspective in how they grew up and why they believe in the things they do. I, I would love to read a piece or a book on your trip to Vietnam because the wiring in your mind of pursuing these nuanced subjects and these behind the scenes subjects and tackling a tackling a, a tough subject. I would love to hear <laughs> the coverage of somebody who's free to kind of say what they want, you know, after being, you know, uh, pressure to to be a mouthpiece for a private com private news company for so many years it would be interesting to hear your coverage your viewpoint on you know vietnam's changed I mean, it's unrecognizable from when you were eight you know uh i go back there two three times a year and there's changes every time i come back and it's a some places are just even more technologically advanced feeling than thailand or or Hong Kong or Taiwan. It's amazing. Yeah, I was laughing because I was like, Kenneth, are you telling me to write another book before the first book is in the hands of everyone? That's a lofty homework assignment there you just gave me uh, in front of all your listeners here. So now I feel uh, some pressure here to uh, get started on that book. Well, my next question will be what's next after this, after your, you know, do you have any, anything percolating in your, your mind about the next subject that you're going to approach? I'm not sure yet. I mean, right now I'm really focused on continuing this dialogue, getting the book out to, you know, university students, whoever wants to read it, because I think it's an important conversation. And to be honest with you right now, I'm kind of just enjoying not being on TV. Yeah. It's been really nice not to have to read the news every day. I get to choose when I read the news. And what's been really nice is having my own opinions again. So I think had I been a news reporter still while going on your show, I would have had to be a little bit more careful about some of my answers. And now being able to just speak freely is like the most exciting thing ever. I mean, my conversations with people have changed and people have noticed that where they're like, wow, you're, you're a lot more willing to say, you know, what you think. And I'm like, this is freedom. Like this is what everyone else has gotten to do. But for 10 years I had to you know, be careful. You don't want to get in trouble. You want to seem neutral. Um, so I think right now I'm kind of enjoying this change. Yeah, it's awesome. You remember that movie Network? Was it Network? Mm -hmm. was, it ne was it Network? This was Facebook? Was this a Facebook one or something? No, no, else? no. It's an old movie um, where the, the anchor loses it. It's a Oh, man. this one I don't remember, but oh, it sounds yeah. interesting. Oh, it's no, it was a famous film. Um, God, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Network. I forget who the the main character was i could see his his face but he loses it he loses it because he can't keep up the veneer anymore and he just he goes on a rant in front of like live tv and uh it reminds me of you know the pressure that mounts when we have our mouth covered and uh living like that must be so uncomfortable yeah because um so I talk about this in the book as well. Um, there was a moment in Minnesota. I was at this business party. My friend works in finance and people were drunk and I was sober because I'm a news reporter. So I have to be careful. Right. And so this woman comes up to me and she's drunk, but I don't think that justifies it. And she's like, oh, what, you know, what, what are you or, or some ignorant question like that. And I'm always like, I was born in Los Angeles. You know, I kind of wait and they're like, no, where are you, where are you from? You know, California. And then finally, I'm like, okay, okay. She means she wants me to say I'm beating me. So I've given. And she goes, I love your people. And I'm like, where is she going with this? You know? And I'm thinking like, I need to be prepared, but I need to be neutral. I'm at a business party. People know I'm a reporter. And so I ask, because I'm still a news reporter, right? I'm curious. I go like, why is that? Why, why do you love my people? You know, which is a questionable sentence to say anyways. She goes, I love pho and I love getting my nails done. And if it wasn't for your people, I wouldn't have pho. And, you know, she's drunk, but my friend knew that like, almost like my eyes were getting bigger and I'm almost like foaming at the mouth. Right. But I'm like, don't say it, Crystal, don't say it. And she's like this way. And she kind of pulls me out of that interaction. And so and now I just feel good. If someone says something like that to me, I can just be like, you know what, let's, let's set a couple things straight. So yeah. it feels like actually in a way, uh, I might be able to make maybe more of an impact now because I, wow. I can just kind of say it, right? Yeah, liberating.
Yeah. Now, um, we are close to the end, and I want would love to, for you to remind the audience once again about the book. And then after that, I'd love for you to say something in Vietnamese because I know you speak mm -hmm. Vietnamese and love to say say something. I, you know, my mom listens to uh, all the Vietnamese podcasts that I do in Vietnamese. And I know mm -hmm. that your mom probably will be tuning in at one point. And I would love for you to say something in Vietnamese to her. But yeah, let's, so... Let's remind the audience again about the book. <laughs> no pressure. Um, so if you want to buy the book and read about you know my life as a TV news reporter, as a Vietnamese TV news reporter, you can go to moretotellbook.com. So title, moretotellbook.com. Make sure, because you're a listener, um, that you enter in the code VIETNAM. When you check out, that way you get a discount. Um, and my message to my parents, Cảm ơn bố mẹ nhiều lắm. Tối ngày thương con, không có mực mình con nhiều quá. Mà coi con trên TV mỗi ngày, dạy con làm sao làm một người tốt. Dạy con làm sao đừng có sai nhiều tiền quá. And dạy con để biên, biên giỏi. Bởi vì bây giờ con biên được cái quyển sách này. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. I really appreciate you coming on today and it's such a, a pleasure to really hear the story and all the things that, you know, I hope we covered it and perhaps maybe, um, you know, once the book is out and I get a chance to read it, maybe, you know, we go over it if we, if you have the time and, and, and things work out that way, you know? Yeah, no, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you continuing the conversations. Obviously, as a journalist yourself, you ask good questions. Um, so I really appreciate the opportunity as well to talk to you. And, you know, it's an important subject. And I hope when people listen to this, um, maybe they'll think about something differently or maybe they'll totally disagree, which is good, too. That means you thought about it. So, yeah, you know, this is uh, November 2022. And who knows in, you know, 2024, your views get richer and they get deeper and then they they go off into different tangents as a result of being liberated from the framework of, of the mm -hmm. newsroom. And I look forward to that. I look forward to that conversation in a few years that, you know, you come back and you probably have a different book or a different project that you're working on, maybe a film or, or something like that. This is the place that I would love to receive um, and welcome that uh, evolution of who you become. The exclusive. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, thanks again. I really appreciate talking to you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. 